On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have an interview with the founder of a betting trading company, a market, I guess, as they say, uh, Smarkets. We interview Jason Trost, who's the CEO founder. And then we actually revisit with one of our good friends who knows a lot about the NFL draft, Josh Hermsmeyer, who tells us a little bit about the best surprise pick for number two and who's likely to go at three. Hint, he has inside information. Okay, maybe he doesn't, but it's worth listening to anyways. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not the typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom Welcome to the long awaited. Episode of the Bet the Process podcast, where Rufus and I, after a, a fairly long hiatus, this might be the longest hiatus we've we've ever had. Uh, Rufus has been kind of off, um, starting a, a company that sounds like uh, uh, basically he's becoming a tout, and maybe the next Michael Schwimmer. Uh, but who knows? Who knows what it's really going to be? Maybe I'm going. We'll for, I'm going for Vegas Dave. Vegas Dave. Yeah, we're lucky enough to be joined by Jason Trost, who's the CEO and founder of a new company in the uh, in the sports betting space. Well, I guess I, I don't really know how new it is, but it's definitely um, new in the somewhat States. new. It's what, 12, 12 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, new compared to um, like the world, the earth. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. The earth is yeah. a lot a lot older than that. Um, so tell us a little bit about it and, and why, why should we care about it now? 12 years old. That's crazy. So are you guys like, yeah. that's well, how old is Betfair? It's younger than the earth. Uh, it's, Betfair is like 20 years old. I think Betfair was founded in 99, 2000. So like 21 so years old. So is Betfair like older than the earth or younger than the earth? <laughs> it's closer. It's closer to the formation. So uh, how are you markets, than Betfair? Yeah, so I cut my teeth trading. And uh, you know, my, my entry into the space was I got really into the idea that you could trade elections. Um, uh, back in the trade sports days, which you guys probably know, uh, and, and I thought it was such a cool concept, but even though um, I had a degree in computer science and I was a professional trader, I thought there's a better way to do it. Checked out Betfair along the way, and I thought there's, there's a better way to do Betfair. And so, so that's why I got into it. So I, I think why, why you should care about markets is I think we're the only ones in the industry that kind of came at this from a financial technology angle. And we're not sports betting. You know, we don't have sports betting DNA. We have financial technology DNA. And I think that's the key difference uh, between us and pretty much everybody else. So you all have developed your own technology, if I'm correct, right? Rather than... Yes. Soup to nuts. Okay. All of it's ours. Yeah. Yeah. So like we have we have all the components. At, well, I would say we have all the components and then, then, then some. You know, we built a, a betting syndicate, so we have our own trading syndicate. We built an exchange so that people can trade with each other. We built a sports book, and we built all the technology in between to operate all those different entities in-house. So can we start with just talking about exchanges in general? Because I think there's this idea um, that a lot of really smart people have that exchange the exchange model just won't work for sports betting. Um, and if yeah. you look at Betfair, it you know the exchange there has... I mean, I, I has not been wildly profitable. And I think in general, um, most 
people that try the exchange model realize they can make more just booking being the market maker themselves. So what, why do you think, um, first, I guess, do you agree that the exchange, well, I, obviously I think you think the exchange model can work, but, but why do you think you can make it work when it hasn't really been successful um, globally? Uh, that's a loaded question, but, uh, but uh, it's a good question to start off with. So, so to put some numbers in context, so Betfair Exchange, and I have to be careful to say exchange because they have a sports book named, named Betfair as well. So the Betfair Exchange um, is, is decently sized. Uh, the exchange market is about 10% of the UK. So the UK is about a £2 billion a year betting market, and the exchanges have about 10% of that. So it's not, it's not, you know, it's not close to, you know, 50% even, but it's still a decent chunk of change uh, that goes through the exchanges. Um, so almost everybody in the industry uh, thinks of exchanges being apples and sports books being oranges. Uh, but the reason I think an exchange is really powerful and important is to me, a sports book is a shitty version of an apple and the exchange is the good version of an apple. So you can think of a sports book like uh, an, an exchange with a very limited feature set and an exchange is sort of a full feature set. So I think the reason that exchanges have just scratched the surface of what's possible is because the implementation of Betfair, and I, and I will hold our hand up, and our implementation just isn't there yet in terms of the user interface, the friendliness, uh, the accessibility. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the model that's a problem. I think it's more of the interface into the exchange that's a problem. And so one of the things that we decided to build was a sports book that sits on top of our exchange. So you get all the benefits of the exchange pricing with the interface of a sports book. So that's my hypothesis on how you bridge the gap between the sports book world and the exchange world. Uh, but I don't think that, that the exchange is the problem. I think the implementation of Betfair's exchange and, and to a certain extent, um, our exchange hasn't fulfilled the exchange's promise in the industry. Well, theoretically, if you guys are trading yourself within the exchange, there's not very much difference between you and a sports book because you're essentially providing the liquidity. Sorry, you're providing the liquidity necessary for the exchange to kind of look like a sports book, right? Yeah. I mean, I would call a sports book an exchange with one seller, you know? So, like, you know, we. Yes, we are. We do. We are a major. Well, you're like a, it's a market maker model, right? You guys are yes, a market yeah. maker you're instead a of it being a pure of uh, whatever it's called. Like, uh, what's it called when it's not a market maker? Uh, position taker. Uh, no, when yeah. there's like not necessarily a market maker making uh, the markets in between. So you don't. You always have to ma matching, right? Like, there's a difference between matching and having a market maker. In a matching situation, there's always two like people on each side, whereas a market maker may tend to take some of the risk and then provide the liquidity, right? You just have, you uh, have traders that are sitting in the middle there that are providing we, liquidity. We have a computer that sits in the middle providing liquidity, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not like the classic, uh, you know, as a stock trader, um, I, I know you're from the financial world, uh, Jeff, but it's not like the old New York Stock that's Exchange a, where you have. That's a little bit of a stretch. Like I was there 25 years ago. Like, oh, you I mean, you were at O'Connor. By the way, I was at O'Connor for a short stint. Really? When in were you there? In, in Chicago, I was there 2005 to 2007. Oh, dude, I was I was like 80 then. So yeah, I was there in 1994. So that's way right. back, way back that's in the right. day. Like we were um, like still on the. I didn't even know O'Connor was around then. Like. It had been bought by like seven different banks at that point, right? Yeah. The, when I worked there, it was rolled up into uh, UBS's asset management. 
Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, so wait, really quickly, when you said that sports betting is sort of a shitty apple and, and doesn't have the same sports book, sports book. Sorry. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, what, I guess, what is the differentiator in your opinion? What do exchange have exchanges have aside from, um, you know, not being, not limiting people, um, what do exchange ha- exchanges have that, that books don't? Well, broadly speaking, you can't take the other side of the bet and you can't negotiate in price. So you can't queue a price and wait for a better price to come along. What about parlays though? An exchange, you can't, you can't really, can you parlay on an exchange? I don't believe so. Yes, you, you, you can. Should, you should give yes, people. Yes, you can. Although we you have, have exchanges. separate markets for each. Uh, you know, yeah. So from a logistics teams. point of view, it's a, it's a, it's a pain in the butt. And what we end up doing we have like an over-the-counter mechanism to spin up a parlay on the fly. Uh, so we don't pre-create all the markets. Uh, in, in, we don't pre-create all the permutations because obviously that would flood the system, but uh, you can do it in an exchange context. Now, in like there's a, there's a concept in computer science called search costs, which is basically the amount of energy you need to match buyers and sellers. And because of that, um, it's quite hard to do an exchange model, you know, basically where you, you would have to advertise the fact that there, this buyer wants to trade this parlay. Um, so we do a lot of it ourselves just to streamline the process, but there's nothing per se stopping you from doing um, parlays in an exchange model. We used to have exchange traded parlays for the big parlays that were going, you know, like tonight's Champions League match parlays, those kinds of things. But in general, we do, we use over the counter mechanism to do a parlay. But, uh, what? but what, I was, what I was saying before, just real quick about the New York Stock Exchange. So there used to be a dude that sat physically on the New York Stock Exchange, which, which they might still actually. But that anyway, that guy- He's called a specialist, right? Yes. Yeah. So okay. that guy would like physically like market make. Uh, like we, we, we're not market makers in that sense. We're market makers in the sense that we have a continuous two-sided quote, but very rarely do we balance her book. Can I ask, so- are you the primary market maker? This market's the primary market maker on this market's exchange, or do you have, like, how do you incentivize liquidity? How do you incentivize yeah, other so, market makers? So our market maker is called Hansen, and we are the primary market maker on Smarkets. Like Bob Hansen? Uh, like, like, as in Robin Hansen, the economist from uh, Georgia yeah. Tech, but, but, but I like, I like Bob Hansen as well. I mean, yeah, you could, you could use them. Are you guys, why, why have I heard of Betfair and I've never really heard of Smarkets until Rufus told me we should have you on our podcast? Because <laughs> I've, I've been an under the radar. We've been kind of an under the radar company. So is that you a know, good we, strategy long-term? <laughs> well, ask, ask me in 20 years. Uh, we'll see. I think it's because we, you know, we had to build all of our own technology and it's taken, it's taken a while. It's taken a while to, to, to do that. So we started from scratch. I started when I was 26 and you know, I didn't know any better and I didn't know how long it was going to take. And I thought it'd take two years to compete with Betfair and it, you know, ended up taking 10, 11 years. So we're starting to, we're starting to roll out the advertising now in in a major way, but we've kind of kept quiet the last 10 years. So is that, I mean, I was going to ask kind of a similar question in terms of how you plan to compete in the United States, especially with the big boys, DraftKings, FanDuel, even like MGM, Barstool, all the, and all their marketing spend. Are you, and and um, are you planning on raising? Are you are you just are you going to fly under the radar and let the product speak for itself, or or do you envision eventually markets exchange presented by DraftKings? 
Um, I just started sweating a little bit when you said that. Um, me too. I, I'm <laughs> um, the way uh, to me. I, I can I can I ask you to take a step back and just can we sure. talk a little bit about the state sure. of the business, like that that sort of question I had with about Betfair, while it was an obnoxious way I phrased it. Um, yeah. was, was a real question. So I'm like wondering like where you guys are as a business. I, I, cause like everything that you articulated around the technology you've built, it seems incredibly principled and smart to me essentially, which is, it, it sounds smart to me, which is this idea that like, you know, you're, you're building all this machinery to almost create like, uh, you know, the, the, the best sports book, i.e. having it powered by an exchange kind of thing, but having it have the simplicity that a sports or familiarity that the betting that it needs. So like, where yeah. are you as a business and, and when do you start, when do we start to see like the world domination plan from you? We have, well, let me put some numbers. So, so we're like a 25, 26 million revenue business. Uh, we have about a half a million customers. We have licenses in six countries. Wait, revenue is that gross gaming revenue? That is our gross gaming revenue. Well, it doesn't make sense to use that model because we have a we have a commission side of our business and we have a market making side of our business. So altogether, it's about twenty six million dollars, give or take. Can I ask? So, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting. Can I ask no, no, no. what that's like? How much matched? Like what, what's the volume? What's like the handle? Entrepreneur now, so he can't contain himself to ask about all these. <laughs> I just have to prove myself. Here. Methods. And- what's my cost of acquisition and uh, yeah. all that stuff? Uh, oh my god! Like our our volume has gone through the roof, and I I'm trying to think of the accurate number, but it's in the low billions per year. Like I want to say I want to say three or four billion a year, something. That's like your that. volume. That's our volume. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And we're about 1% market share in the UK of all betting. And we're about 15% market share of exchange betting. Rufus, what would you say your volume is in a year? um, My group last year, notwithstanding somewhere probably between 50 and hundred million. It's gotta be more than that. I don't know. I haven't added it up. That seems way low considering how much you tell me every week that you have in play for golf. Well, golf just is a lot golf. of it now. Golf is golf. I'm anyways because sorry. I'm doing all the entrepreneurial stuff, Jeff. I have less time to focus on betting. <laughs> sorry about that, J- Jason. Back back to what you were saying. It's only money. Yeah. So we probably trade. Uh, you know, like in terms of bets, and, and it, of course it goes up and down. But I say we're taking about ten million dollars of bets a day. We're placing ten million dollars of bets a day. So like not the biggest in the world, but like we're we're getting up there. So what markets are you in right now? In the States, just Colorado, uh, our biggest market's the UK. That's our home market. So, you know, I quit my job at UBS in 2007 and moved over to London. So I was in London for a decade building the business and that's our home market. But yeah, we're in, we're in Colorado, very, very much under the radar right now, just trying to test things out. And uh, Indiana is our next state. And you've gotten licenses in both of those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the... Yeah. What are your prospects? How do you feel about the U.S. broadly? Yeah, so to to your earlier point, uh, how are we going to compete? I mean, I think ultimately Americans want, you know, we want Netflix in a blockbuster world. I think the market, you know, we're living in blockbuster land right now for the bookmakers. And I think it's going to, you know, at some point there's going to be Netflix and people are like, well, I'm not driving a blockbuster. 
Um, I think the existing incumbents have shitty products, shitty prices. They're pretty boring to use. And, and I think our product is exciting and, and crushes them on price. So I think, uh, you know, to your point of like, we have been squirreling away uh, building this thing, but I've always built this to kind of crush the industry. And I think, I think we're in the right direction. You know, we're going the right direction where I think all the other competitors, you know, they, they know how to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing. I'll, I'll give them that much, but they don't know how to do, they don't know how to build product at all. Um, I think all of our competitors have really shitty products and uh, yeah. So, so my, so day so in and day let's, out, let's, um, let's take a step further in that. Cause I think that's a good point. Right. And I think sure. this is right. Because ultimately the challenge right now is that there's just a ton of money being thrown in this. And if it's a user acquisition game, which it does seem to be at some point at some mm-hmm. level, right. How does product win? And what does that, what does it mean to have a better product besides price? So if you want to leave price aside, I think the biggest uh, issue with our competitors and, 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 uh, you know, to a certain extent us as well, is that the most sports betting products are basically grids with a logo on top of it. You know, there's nothing to do around the bet itself. There's nothing to do with socialization. There's nothing to do with, there's no sense of community. There's no engagement about the game itself. And I think basically they're very flat experiences. And I think there's, you know, our competitors are missing a trick by trying to create that kind of second screen experience, that kind of the community around betters. You know, the fact that, you know, when I was a trader, I was a trader in Chicago before I went to O'Connor um, at, a, at, a, at a small shop. And what I noticed was traders just love to talk to each other, like talk shit, complain, blah, blah, blah. And sports bettors are the same. You know, people want to talk while they're betting. And I, I don't think I don't ever want to talk book- to Rufus if I don't have to. So. <laughs> uh, there's probably some other guys you want to talk to, though. Uh, <laughs> I don't think any sports books have really tapped into that. And, and we, we've started to scratch the surface on SBK. If you, if you check that out, we have a social network on that where people can uh, chat with each other and talk, talk shit and trade t- tips and things. And I think that's, that's one of the key ways to draw people in. And I also think, you know, the content around sport, that kind of second screen experience, I think will make a richer uh, betting experience. So I actually want to get in uh the weeds just a little bit on the price stuff you said so Mm -hmm. and and sorry if these questions come across as like hey rufus can we like before we get into that can we just i just want to keep pulling on this one thread and then we can go to pricing out oh no just okay yep because um so i i think i agree with you right and and like ultimately though the what i worry about or what i wonder about or what i would challenge you about is it sounds like a lot of the infrastructure that you've built up until now hasn't been about this sort of experience or social or second screen. So how do you plan to sort of like morph your DNA from a betting company into more of a media company or social company, which is, which to me seems like a little bit of a stretch. You had me convinced that you understood how to operate like the best exchange and make it look like a sports book. Now you're trying to convince me that you can somehow create a better media experience around sports betting. Well, I, I think that's a fair point and maybe we don't and and maybe it's a stretch on our DNA that that said I think we we have always been obsessed about the customer always been obsessed about the product in a way that I think our competitors haven't been and so I do have confidence that at least we will have a bona fide effort at experimenting with this and so you know social is something we haven't cracked yet but 
but we're trying, we're the only ones out there trying. And I think that the market, you know, if we find the right formula, I think it's going to be extremely, you know, it could be extremely compelling. I think our main USP is price. Uh, but I also think that we have a shot at nailing the other aspects of user experience. And to the point of technology, you know, uh, pretty much all of our competitors outsource their technology. Uh, so it makes it very hard for them to kind of play with the plumbing and, and ways that we can do with that. So, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that we're going to become the next uh, Snapchat for sports betting, uh, but we're going to try. We're going to try to make a compelling social experience around sports betting. And I think we have a chance. Uh, I think we have a chance that, you know, nobody else is really even trying at doing. So my Twitter. That would be good. By Twitter, yeah. and that would give you guys access. Do to I have to take Jack, Twitter. or can I can I dump Jack? Dude, Jack's the best, man. He's the best. Yeah, he's yeah. the part time. I, work, I worked at Twitter for three and a half years, so I know okay. Jack pretty well. So I, I I'm with Scott Galloway in the sense that I think I think Jack needs to resign. <laughs> well, hey, before, before we get in, before we get into yeah, Twitter, sorry, well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> I'd love to hear that and understand so, that. You mentioned price, and I think, but I think price and volume kind of go price and liquidity go hand in hand. So I know you have a commission, right? It's one to two percent. Um, but on the exchange, we don't have a commission on the sports on the exchange. But right. you're also still essentially, if if you're not a market maker, if you're taking a price, you're also paying vig in the fact that there's a bid and an ask. So I pulled up mm -hmm. this is markets. I assume markets UK, the Valspar Championship. Um, it looks like. One side adds up to 94.98%. The other side adds up to 521.42%. You know, if I want to, mm -hmm. if I want to bet Corey Connors, I can get plus 21.99 for $50 and I can lay minus 2,400 for 374. But then I still also have to pay that commission, the mm -hmm. one to 2%. So, so mm -hmm. I think to be price competitive, you're going to need, you need tight bid ass spreads, which is going to come from more liquidity. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I, I think that's fundamentally the challenge of exchanges. And I personally, I, I know, sorry for the tough questions, but I, I'm personally bullish on exchanges. And I think that, you know, selfishly speaking, I really want them to succeed. Um, but, you know, for, for me, like, I see this and I'm like, this isn't enough for me to get down on. Um, you know, $50 is not really worth my time. So how I feel like you need to be able to appeal to the you're, you're kind of going for the segment, I assume, of people that are underserved by the traditional sports books that are limited, that want to get a good price and want to be able to get volume. How do you entice that liquidity? Well, I think in some cases, uh, it's about our own in-house market makers stepping up, you know, so, you know, in this case, I agree that 50 quid or 50 bucks isn't, isn't the most in the world, but, you know, like with a few tweaks of the parameter, I can crank that up to 10,000. So we're, we're, we're basically looking for, I mean, to, to go to your question about our target customer, we're looking for the everyday punter, you know, the everyday better that wants to have the best price. Um, I don't know who your sports book of choice is, but I would imagine that our prices are crushing your sports book of choice for these golfers, right? Um, I, well, I don't have one sports book of choice, but but if you just if compare this against dollars on Rufus Shotty, is, a, Rufus is very much a William Hill guy. He's oh, a, I love, well, love Billy. only William Hill. <laughs> so sad to see Joe Asher go. Um, so, so Rufus, the thing is what, what they're doing though, isn't, it, it reduces a lot of what we would consider to be the traditional problems with um, exchanges, meaning like he is 
stepping up and, and providing a good deal of that liquidity. Well, but, right? but that's what Betfair does too, Jeff. I don't think they that's don't, anything. They don't here. provide liquidity. They don't trade. They're, they're not seeding markets themselves anymore. Well, at one no. point they were early, like but a long time ago. But theoretically, it's a but, dial that Jason could decide to to to. to but you need you know, market makers up. that are gonna that are gonna be willing to commit a certain amount, and you have to pay yeah, those we, market makers. No, but yeah, he's, we, they are, are. The right. They are the market maker. He is trading yeah. from within okay. there, right? He's. He, I don't know if Hansen. you're paying attention to this, mm -hmm. but like is trading for them. What's that? I thought it was right. mm -bop. Mm -bop, exactly. Right. You you are paying it's the mm bot actually. Yeah, I get it. I get so it. I guess yeah. if you said you That's can crank you it up, change the name to. If you can yeah. crank up the liquidity, though, like why am I still seeing that I can only bet on Scotty Shuffler for six dollars? Okay, so there's a there's a few things to unpack here. Unlike a traditional sports book, you can bet over and over and over again, right? So I think I think most traditional sports books will will stop you from betting. No. But, uh, but I mean, not, you know, it depends who, but yeah, I mean, like you Vegas can bet 50 quid to let you bet, you know, they move the line and let you bet again. Like I okay. think it's, it's a recent innovation from Europe that has not allowed you to rebet. But so without going into the magic of how we do trading, uh, because some of it's intellectual property, you know, it's, it's like trading is a risk reward game. Right. And so you, you want to balance how much you put up on the, on the book versus how much you're willing to wit risk. So we have some formula when we refill and how much size we put on. But, you know, as we grow as a company, like we're, we're always looking to put more and more size on. And, and to, to Jeff's point, you know, I could crank this up to 10K right now if I wanted to. So it's just sort of a it's a trade off. You know, it's like this isn't when does this tournament start tomorrow? Like golf isn't our, you know, it's not our number one sport. We're not focused on it. You know, you know, we're trading 50,000 contracts 24 hours a day, give or take. Okay. You know, but, so I mean, like I, yeah. I'm pulling up Manchester United versus Roma. This is, I assume, markets in the UK. Because, um, mm -hmm. sure. But, and I still see if I want to bet Manchester United, $222 at minus 172. Um, I assume that's a big game. I don't know. I've heard of both those teams. So, but it's a Europa. Yeah, it's a exactly. decently sized game. But, yeah. So I guess my question is if like you can do that, like why not have that like more liquidity behind it? Because of adverse selection, it's it, you know it's it's you run up into adverse selection territory. Do, do are you familiar with that? Of course. Yeah. No. So basically, it's an adverse selection game, and so this like is a product of adverse selection. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, okay. the funny one. Okay. I mean, I'm the I, I, look, I, I deal with that. Like, if I bet something, I move the market. The market comes back to me. Do I want to bet? You know, that's not. I don't believe my edge is the same as if as before the market. Before I encountered that price resistance, I, but I, but Rufus, I think that the 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 theory here, right, is is obviously there. There still obviously needs to be liquidity, right? There needs to be an opportunity for them to to take more liquidity. But he has sort of the machinery in place to run what we believe to be sort of like the holy grail, which is an exchange that's you know that that that's funneled by sort of prop trading and and it, behind it to some degree, right? I guess what I'm saying is that like, you're just is, not seeing it. Well, right. I mean, and, and you guys are, I mean, a lot smaller than Betfair. Um, and sure. so you don't like you, you, I mean, and so is there thought to raising money to be able to sort of make these markets a lot bigger and just to. Yeah, I guess the question would grow. be, what, what would it take Jason at this point for you guys to feel confident 
to offer in, um, say, Colorado, right? You know, uh, Rufus, what what would you consider to be a pretty liquid market in golf matchups? Five K. I mean, that would be the best in the United States if they had five K. Okay, so let's say matchups. that. What would but it let's take not talk about golf. Let's, let's talk about a more traditional market, maybe like a baseball game. Okay. MLB. I mean, yeah. it, what do I, you I, take I, on any MLB game? You know, let's say o- overnights. Yeah, uh, 10, 20K. It's small for us. Wait, 10, 20K on MLB overnights? Yeah, that's not small. That's not small. <laughs> I mean, no, not over. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking overnight in Paris time, but, uh, you know, 10 to, we'll take 10, 20K per MLB game. Okay, how about overnights? Uh, I, uh, hundreds. Is, is this, yeah. is this, um, in Colorado on SBK or is this both? In- we, we, we have, we have one sharp that's having some fun with us in Colorado. Um, so yeah, so we've been, we've been taking some, some pretty big bets in Colorado for baseball. I mean, I, I'm, so I'm looking here and I could bet $34 on the Reds Dodgers game. So you're bringing up an important point, you know, so, so, you know, we do have the capability, like, like I said, we can dial it up or dial it down. I mean, you, you, you're very right to pick on some of our liquidity is low across these things. It's kind of a, it's, it's a constant game for us to try to build these things. And, you know, to the point of like, what are we trying to do? Like every year we get bigger and bigger and trade more and more and have more liquidity and, and get, you know, like this is, this is something that we've been working on for a long time. It's not perfect. Uh, but I, I think that the, important point is that we own all this technology it's a parameter away from dialing this thing up so it's just about you know as we get more liquid it's about making our trading infrastructure more sophisticated like as you're trading 50,000 things concurrently with with basically you know generalized algorithms you have to think of like all the cases that you know people like you would pick us off right so we have to deal with people right. like you 24 hours a day picking us off 24 hours a day i realize that and like i'm not trying to yeah. pick on you with this i i'm, I'm just trying to uh, i'm trying to understand like make a point i guess and and, and understand why um where how, how we're going to see the growth and and if you know like why for example are you uh, like when i consider bringing in other market makers that would take on risk themselves because they there are very there are very very few good market makers in the world very few and, and they don't I, have to I, be good though right they just have to provide the i mean if they're yeah what, but, what, what but makes a good market maker a good market maker i guess somebody I mean, would you that let has rufus a conti- trade would you let rufus trade from within your world in colorado and golf i mean i, uh, I anybody it, can make a market i guess but i mean like on a yeah you mean do like we we have fifty API clients to that point, so so we have fifty professionals that are plugged into our API. So we do encourage other people to trade in our platform. But to, to how I define a market maker, somebody that's willing to offer a continuous bid offer on a wide range of contracts, and most people are not willing to do that. Most people want to just sit there and wait for the price to be wrong. Of course, because you're a sitting yeah. duck, and I understand that. You yeah. you know you you post a line, and suddenly LeBron is. Well, it's announced LeBron's out and boom, you know, yeah. there's a, there, the line moves seven points and you're, you know, you're, there's your adverse selection. Right. But yeah, I mean, which is why you kind of are essentially paying someone you, you need to incentivize, like you have to compensate the market maker more than I think just no commission or whatever. Right. 
So, I mean, you can argue that we're doing an insufficient job and that we're, we're too small, but I would say, you know, we're trading hundreds of millions a month. So we're doing something right. I think, I think as we get better, we are going to get better, you know, and our sizes will get, will get so bigger. Why, and in general, so, so why yeah. is Rufus seeing these low, like totals, if you are such a big global, I mean, like low limits, if you are such a globally successful business? Our, our, our biggest sports is soccer and horse racing. And so golf and baseball are not, you know, we don't spend a lot of our time in golf and baseball. So, you know, our home, even though we're expanding to the U.S. and we need to get better at trading American sports, our, our home market, like is soccer is, is the biggest thing. So that's where he's put a lot of our time. And, you know, if you look at a soccer, you know, if you look at tonight's um, Champions League, like we will have the best prices in the world. And I would almost mean that literally. And we will have the most liquidity in the world for tonight's Champions League soccer game. So we put a lot of our, our effort in that sport. But as we as we go into Colorado and, and the, the rest of the U.S., we will be putting more resources into the, the American sports. But we're also like, and, and I mean this, I'm not trying to be funny, but we're not trying to cater to Rufus. We're like, we don't necessarily care if you trade on our site or not. We're trying to, we're trying to cater to the average uh, better. And we want people to be able to get the best price and, you know, not have to worry about, worry about anything. My son is sneaking so, in right now. So, <laughs> and, and look, in, in fairness, I, I pulled up the Champions League game tonight, um, Paris Saint-Germain against Man City. And I'm seeing on one side, for, if I want to, uh, well, I can get $1,020 on Paris, well, now $747 on Paris Saint-Germain. But if I want to lay against them, there's 24,000 of liquidity there. And, you know, on Man City, it's 56,000 on one side, 4,000 on the other side. So certainly yeah. more than more than the $34 for baseball, but. Well, let, let's just, let's just assume Rufus, let's not like fact check on every price. Oh, no, I mean, I just have I'm this sure. pulled up. So that's I know, but like, let, the, what I, mean, I think is, what I think is interesting here, right. Which is, I think kind of this question with, with exchanges, right. Is, is the recreational better the general recreational better. Does he care that much about price long-term? And because ultimately what you're saying is in mainstream events, you feel like you guys are going to have the best price and the best limits and whatnot. But in the, in the areas where there's usually a place to get picked off, you're not going to be any better than necessarily like you probably be a little better than DraftKings or William Hill, but you're not going to be that much better. So like the, the, those two things seem a little bit juxtaposed and this goes back to like, I don't know if you ever saw the, the panel that Rufus and I did with Jeffrey Yass and his, his point was that people will become very price sensitive and like people will end up being price sensitive and like, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting question and, and I think ultimately this is something that none of us know, but it's how does the US market play out as it pertains to who wins, right? Like you have right now, a lot of companies that are quote unquote winning that are providing a horrible experience from a, from a price standpoint and a, and both sides, right? Let's like, they're not letting sharps bet a lot of money and they're providing crappy prices for the average, for the average better. So I, I don't know. Do you have, do you, I guess the question really would be like, where do you think the U S market goes? You've already made a point on, on where you think innovation may come from. Um, but how, what, wh why in the end does a DraftKings lose just because they're, they, they, you know, why do they lose? Well, I think they made a big mistake on the SB tech acquisition that that's a company that's full of, uh, 
uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the mines. Uh, so I think, I think it was a huge mistake to make that acquisition. I think that it's going to take years before that they would even be able to fully integrate a B2B company to make it B2C. They, but leaving did, that, they, did you talk to them about getting bought by them? No, no, we didn't talk to them. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I've been around technology for, for quite a while. I think we're just in the MySpace era of sportsbooks right now. You know, it's just, if you think about, if you take every other industry in America, like, things change fast. You know, like, the things that we used 10 years ago, we don't, we don't use today. And, you know, if you think about, you know, where did Instagram come from and Snapchat and TikTok and all these kinds of things that, you know, like we wouldn't have predicted those 15 years ago. And I, I think sports books are just so early technology that, you know, things move so fast. There's so much money. There's so much funding out there that I, I, I have no doubt that there's going to be tons of innovation in this industry. Um, maybe DraftKings rides the wave and, uh, and beats it out. But I, I, just, I just feel like they're MySpace. Well, you would call them Blockbuster and now MySpace, so they're not—they're not like doing particularly well in this. What what I what I what I worry about, and and I think like what you're saying is um, fair. What I worry about is that this is such a regulated industry where the barrier to entry is so high yeah. that you are essentially like stimulate. Uh, sorry, you're stifling innovation yeah. at many levels, right? So at yeah. some point, something has to change. Yeah. as it pertains to that. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the barrier to entry is licensing. It's the customer acquisition costs, which are enormous. It's, um, you know, even just technology like data, like access to data. It's just not a, a place like when people ask me, like, why don't you start a business in this? It's like, it's, and, and not only that, but you might end up having to build 51 different products, right? Specifically yeah. in the US and, and even outside of the US. So I guess, like, it's a very good point, right? That's, that's a very good point. But I would say like, you know, any other large regulated industry tends to find a way around. If there's enough money in that, people will find a way around the regulation side. But it is, I have seen it. I think it's getting worse in the industry. I think the fact that you have to have a casino partner is such an anathema to trying to have an open market. You know, in most states, you have to have a casino partner, which I just do not understand why America went down that route. Um, and I do think the barriers to entry, like you're saying, scare off a lot of normal entrepreneurs that, you know, it's just easier to make a chat app because your chat app can be global from day one rather than waiting to have to go to this license and that license. But I think, you know, we've seen with the, with the market cap of, 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 you know, DraftKings and, and Flutter and all these guys, like it's a huge market you know, everybody's pretty sure that it's going to get bigger. And, you know, I think, I think innovation will come in, you know, I think it'll be interesting if the big tech companies start to get involved, you know, the Facebook, Google, Amazons, you know, who knows if they will, but I think you could see a title shift if that happens. And I also think if Silicon Valley started backing this, I think things could change in a big way. So far, Silicon Valley has largely sat this industry out Um but uh, but I think if if that changes, things could change. I mean, but the reason Silicon Valley is is not stepping in here, there's a few reasons, right? One is what we've talked about. Another is because of the optics of it, right? It's still mm. seen a bit as a sin. So that that one you could see maybe changing over time, and it's already changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would yeah, say I the same know. with marijuana and crypto. And Silicon Valley seems to be doing all right in marijuana and crypto, more crypto than marijuana, I would say, but. 
Well, I mean, I marijuana about- for sure, right? There's tons of innovation happening there. And it's yeah. not just marijuana, right? It's like the CBD or whatever, all the yeah. TEC, whatever. I don't even know all the acronyms. I'm, 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 not a, I'm not a druggie like Rufus. So I just want to buy <laughs> Seth Rogen's marijuana. It's got to be good. Is that um, like George Clooney's tequila? We're, I haven't tried would- that yet. Rufus, do you have anything else for him? It'd be good to let Jason go back to his day job. I know as a founder of a 12-year-old startup company that he probably has work to do. Uh, no, that's that's all I got. Um, okay. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming Thanks, on. Thanks, Jason. And for sorry if my I questions told- were a little like, I, I just, you know, it's an, obviously an industry that I have a lot of uh, opinions about. And and I'm really, I'm really hopeful for the exchange stuff, but I'm yeah, just, and I, I, I think we wish you the best of luck. Obviously there, there's a lot to what you're doing that we fundamentally believe in. Um, the story is really good. And obviously in any way that we can ever help, would love to help. Awesome. No, I, uh, I, I, I'm very passionate about this space. So like, I, I'm glad you guys, uh, picked on it a little bit is that we're, you know, we're not a perfect company by any means, but I think what we're trying to do is if we're not successful at it, I hope somebody else is because the industry needs it. So we're going to now welcome in Josh Hermsmeyer, who's our favorite guest to talk about Pinot Noir um, and to sort of play Guess That Vineyard and then also talk about um, the ex- uh, population explosion in, uh, in Idaho that's happening right now, which, is, which are all the things that, that people listen to this podcast here. And then maybe we'll touch on the NFL draft. Um, but actually, let's start with the NFL draft. So what is, what, like the question everyone wants to know is who's going at three? That is the question, isn't it? And, and I don't actually think it would be all that terribly interesting of a question if it weren't for the fact that, you know, San Francisco did all of these things to kind of wave their arms and stomp their feet and say that we, we are sure of ourselves on this one. We know who we want and we're so certain of it that we're going to trade lots of draft capital to do it. And I think when you see a team take those kind of actions, it really does heighten the drama. And it makes you kind of, makes you really wonder what their process is and if it looks anything different than anyone else's. Uh, and, and I think in the case of, to answer the question, who's gonna go, I, I think it's far less interesting to me at least than the process that goes into the pick. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I don't know that there's a sound, right? So I, I, I'm really interested to see what happens. And uh, if it's Mac Jones, um, I think uh, there's going to be lots of confounders around whether or not he was a good pick because Shanahan's system is so QB friendly and he could, you know, turn a turd into something that looks, you know, remotely like a possible, you know, starting quarterback in the NFL, or he could take, you know, someone who has uh, the pieces and, and the skills and traits he, he desires and, and turn them into, you know, Jimmy G in the Super Bowl. So I, I don't, uh, I, I don't really have a strong take on who they should take. Um, at, at number three, but at, after the fact, I want someone, I really desire this. I hope someone will do a TikTok behind the scenes that isn't completely results oriented and, and, and give us some insight into how this draft played out and what their thinking was um, as, it, as they led up to making those trades for this pick. Yeah, I wonder if my buddy uh, Parag would actually let me talk to him about it and we could actually interview him about it because you know, Parag, obviously, like I have a tremendous amount of respect for the way that organization thinks and for okay. them to do something of this type, um, which is like, you know, I've, I've heard all the smart football people say things exactly like you said, which is they need to have so much conviction in this pick to do make the move that they did. Right. So, you know, we could, we could, I mean, it's, it's 
probably one of three people, right? It's either Fields, Jones, or Lance, right? And it's it sounds like it's not going to be Fields right now. So isn't it probably Lance or Jones? That's the current consensus, and that's flip-flopped over the last week and a half when it, Fields was in play. Um, and, in fact, was the consensus number two quarterback for most – of draft season. If well, what's define. happened with him? Why, why has he fallen so much? I mean, is, is he become less athletic? Is he is like, what's, what's the reasoning? It's people watch yeah. more film on him now or what? I, I don't, I don't get it, I guess. You know, I, the people I know in the league are not in a position to be evaluating him in the way that the teams that possibly have a shot at fields uh, are. And so I don't really have any insight into like, medicals or background checks or anything like that. I think the most scandalous thing that's come out about fields is that he's an epileptic. And I just think that that's, you know, a completely manageable disease and, and not a, not a, not a real problem for him to be a, a superstar at his position. So I couldn't tell you, um, but certainly there's something going on. Right. And, and usually when you see a player fall like that, it's attached to a character concern or, or something something along those lines. And, and unfortunately, sometimes those things have real legs and they, they really mean something. And then sometimes they mean nothing at all. And so it's just so hard to read into whether this is a, a fall that has is any basis in, in, in a rational process or not. Hmm. So um, what do you think about the amount of quarterbacks that are being sort of named? Do you think that this is a quarterback rich draft or do you think that this is just a, analytics eating the world kind of thing where people are finally realizing that the quarterbacks early is the best way to sort of ensure success or, you know, highly leveraged from a, from a standpoint of risk return. Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical that the league has come around. I think it's more the case that uh, there's a dearth of edge defensive players that are worthy of first round grades, that there aren't a ton of, uh, really high impact uh, corners. I guess there's a few. There's no running backs that really stand out. And and like someone like uh, Trent Balky, like he he would have no problem taking a, a running back in the first. <laughs> I mean, even though they have a high pick, you know, and, and there's no way they would ever do that. But I, he he's a he's a kind of guy who would trade up or take a high second on a on a running back. But there just isn't a, a lot of talent. Uh, I think Najee on Alabama is the, is the top of the list and. Uh, he, he didn't really do much until his last year. So I think, I think it's more the case that just the, the other positions aren't uh, stellar this year and quarterback certainly with uh, Lawrence at the top has a little star power. What about um, this, the sort of uh, narrative around, um, you know, Kyle Pitts being the best kind of overall, I mean, do you, where do you think he goes? Does it make sense that he goes to Atlanta? Is that like sort of the easiest layup in the world given the Arthur Smith situation, et cetera. Seems that way. Right. And uh, I would have to, to check where he's currently mocked to go. He's mocked to go third. So that wouldn't quite work out, but uh, I, I don't know that, that when you say he's sense. mocked to go, are you looking at consensus or what are you looking yeah, at? It's just the average rank. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, when you actually put it in terms of which teams are picking where it's just, where he's mocked by the as, as an average draft position uh, from the consensus of mocks. So yeah, it doesn't make sense that he would go three. Obviously, San Francisco is going to take a QB, and and it's very very likely that a QB is going to go at two. 
Um, so yeah, fourth sounds about right. And in terms of like the player and how good he is, I actually didn't do an analysis of him this year, although I probably should have included him with wide receivers. But I think if he was a wide receiver, he'd be the top one on the list. And if he's used as a move tight end, um, that his value would probably be commensurate with a pick like that. What's the, I mean, the, the, the anti tight end bias in this day and age with the NFL, the way it is, does it make any sense to say to like, you know, like to think that, that it's almost like wouldn't tight ends be more valuable than they would. And, and like, where does the anti the anti bias come from? Is it, is it just a historical bias? That's almost the self-fulfilling prophecy like, you know, like when you hear this whole idea of like, oh, if he were a wide receiver, there wouldn't be so much reluctance about taking him early, but because he's a tight end, but that almost seems counter to some degree, right? Because these tight ends that we've had that have been difference makers, especially in this NFL have made a huge difference, right? Yeah, I think it's, so one of the, like, I, I am not a big believer in athletic measurables for a lot of positions, but one where it really makes a lot of difference is tight end. But I, I, and what I mean by difference is it's a feature that has some, some high importance when you're trying to predict production at the NFL level. But what I think it's actually telling us is the teams that draft tight ends, they're athletic and move tight ends, use them in a way that is more like a wide receiver. And, and, you know, to your point, running routes out of the slot is one of the easier positions to get open and get separation. And, and, and when you're big and you have a mismatch in terms of physical size as well, yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand why there aren't more capable move tight ends taken higher. So I think that if a smart team takes him and deploys him correctly, and my gosh, I was, I was fantasizing about the Ravens somehow being able to pick Kyle Pitts and what a perfect fit that would be. But something like that where he's used as a receiver instead of this mentality of we're going to put him in line and he's going to block half the snaps and, and that kind of thing that I think you can really uh, you know extract a lot of value from a guy like Pitts and, and that kind of old – you know, aversion to, to drafting tight ends high and that they take too long to develop is kind of um, uh, ossified thinking. I, I agree. And, and I mean, looking back, Kate and I did a, did a study back using data from 2001 to 2011, where we found, obviously the margin of error is high here, but, but we found that the tight end was basically the second least replaceable position to quarterback. It was the second most important in terms of, you know, losing your, having your starting tight, tight end get injured is going to hurt you more than any other position outside of quarterback. So obviously I don't know if that necessarily is held, um, but, or, or the reason, I mean, I guess it's what you, what you said a little bit, right. Running routes in the slot, but also having the ability to block. And by the way, this is a 10 year period where we didn't really have, you had Antonio Gates, you had, um, I mean, you had like the algae crumblers of the world and you didn't really have superstar tight ends as much as you do today. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, you had Brent Jones and people like that. Um, did, didn't, didn't the Packers have a good one for a time? Yeah, uh, Sharp. So there were a few that, that were decent. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think, I, I think it's just a lack of creativity. I mean, I, again, it sounds so, like so much hubris, but it certainly feels that way to me. I mean, so, I've, so we found that offensive linemen are worth a lot more individually than a wide receiver, um, than wide receivers. This is, by the way, this is – like overall at the, on average. So obviously like the, the, what the, that distribution may become very different. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that a top wide receiver isn't worth that much or whatever, but on average offensive linemen is worth a lot more. So I would almost guess based on that, that our finding almost indicates that like the tight end 
that blocking ability is the big difference maker that probably is undervalued. Hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because there's there's uh, some work that was done by PFF, and they found that you know not as much as the defense, but they found that the, the line is a weak league system where if you have just a bunch of average players, you're probably going to do better than having two real studs. And so there's a lot of confounding going on about, you know, how good was the, how good was the guy at left tackle? You know, was it, was it a function of the other average guys on the line that weren't getting enough credit as the, so that unit could perform. And I think that, you know, I mean, people say football's hard and it's extremely hard when it comes to those two units, um, you know, to evaluate the, 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 the overall effectiveness of a line is just something that's just really hard to untangle. That's a really good point. That's something we didn't dive into in the least. So, so if you let's go back to the draft again, specifically around some of the betting props. Um, I'm looking at Chris, which doesn't have a tremendous amount of props, but kind of just the interesting thing, right? Like obviously the first pick Trevor Lawrence, the second pick Zach Wilson do you think there's any chance in those first two that there's a surprise? I kind of feel like Zach Wilson might be a, might be a complete, just, uh, you know, McGuffin. I don't know. Like, like he just might be a smokescreen. I, Do you think so it's weird. possible that he could, that could, he, he could be someone that, that they don't take. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if fields went to like, I mean, he was number two the whole time. So unless there is, like I say, unless there is something really bad in his profile, um, I think Nick Saban, he, he coaches up his kids. He says, you, you, you want to be an and guy and not a butt guy, right? You want to say, I have all these abilities on tape and I do these things which are character driven instead of a butt guy. And, 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 if, and if Fields is a butt guy, then I can understand that, you know, he might fall. But if, if, there's, if it's just, you know, ingrained biases on these teams which we cannot rule out um you know it would be cool to see uh, a team kind of step up and take him at number two because he certainly has a production profile that fits a number two pick it's fascinating though right because if fields is plus 800 so he's the second favorite according to chris to be the second pick overall but yet then mac jones is by far the favorite at minus 230 to be the third pick where Fields is plus 450. So there is, and I guess the question is, how, from a market standpoint, how knowledgeable do you guys think these markets are? Do you think these are efficient markets at this point? Because ultimately this idea that, you know, Fields is the second most likely to go second, but then is not the most likely to go third is you know it, it's a it's a strange thing and, and you know you have mac jones you have trey lance who's plus 130 there and at third and justin fields is plus 450 so again he's not even the second most likely to go to third he's the third most likely even though he's the second most likely to go at, at second so does anyone follow that ridiculous logic but it just it's an interesting anomaly right well it's teams and their preferences right well doesn't it just go to show you that the, these these markets are very at least from these preferences standpoint, um, you know, we're not talking about the 80th pick. We're talking now about the second and third picks, which you think there would be some general level of, you know, complete information that everyone's making judgments on. So to have that disparity, I I don't know if I've ever seen that much of a disparity going into a draft like this. I think that kind of disparity, if it was like prices of 79, 80 and 81, that would be 
weird and inefficient because of how little we know. But I think given how much you know about these specific teams making these draft picks, it makes sense. Just, you know, you, you might know that the Jets are interested in this quarterback or this quarterback, but not, or at least speculation is not this other quarterback. Whereas, you know, the Niners, you know, I mean, might value this guy higher. It's not like every team has so it's, the same what, grades in every guess, player. I guess what I'm the reason that I'm tr- troubled by it is I'm looking at it as a as like a power rating, and it's not. It's a no. perception. It's it's a guess on what these teams will do. What, which is interesting then because it means that you know at this level, right? These decisions are are not very well aligned in terms of what 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 people believe is ultimately best for them. I know there were a lot of sharp folks, um, especially at PFF, who were putting a lot of money on fields going three. But I always thought it was a bad bet because of just what I said. I thought there's a high, well, not high, but a relatively high chance he could go two. And so it wasn't that you were just betting against Mac Jones. You were also completely ignoring the possibility that he could get scooped at two. And and now he's, you know, fallen all the way down the board. So it's looking less and less likely he's even taken in the top five. But um, I do think it's interesting, though, that uh, I was reading someone's feed. Oh, Ben Baldwin. And he was saying that since Shanahan and Lynch have started their tenure, the reporting on their thinking has been spot on every year, even past the first round. And so you should believe it, basically, is the takeaway. If, 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 if insiders are saying they're taking Mac Jones, it's a lock that they're taking Mac Jones. So for what that's worth. Interesting. Uh, okay. So how about the, be- the first running back to be drafted? Um, Chris has that as Najee Harris at minus 275 at the end at plus 188. Generally again, are we seeing a trend now where people are starting to realize because like Najee Harris isn't, isn't likely to be picked until the back end of the first round. Right. And I think people who watched him certainly think he's a very, he's very talented. And at the end, certainly there's been a lot of, we've watched a lot of Etienne where he's done a lot of things. So it's interesting that those guys could fall out of the first round or even be towards the end of the first round are we now starting to understand that that running backs are not difference makers in the first round, or is it just, again, happenstance? My guess is there's a little bit of underwhelm with these guys on the athletics measurable side. And that is not, it didn't propel anyone up draft boards like it has in perhaps other years. It's just a complete stud athletic specimen at running back. There's also the case that Najee wasn't explosive until this past year, he didn't have a lot of breakout breakaway runs. Um, and so there was not, there's just not a lot on tape until last year that really shows an explosive NFL player. I like Etienne. I think he's fantastic. Like for a running back, um, I would, I would draft that guy if, if I had a, a late second, maybe early. I mean, like right now, like if you could have Etienne or, or Clyde Edwards Alaire, who would you rather have? Etienne. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I hated I hated the the, the meh pick, MEH pick. I just I didn't think he was uh uh I mean obviously not a good use of draft capital, but I just thought he was just you know a guy, you know, in terms of NFL talent. You know, again, I always 
we, we, I get, I get, I get called out a lot when I say things like running backs don't matter, but what I just mean is they're all, it's kind of a solved problem. A at the NFL level, these scouts know what a good running back looks like. And then there's just not a lot of difference between the best and an average NFL quarterback, uh, running back. So you just look like a guy so to me. From a, from a, from a approach standpoint, if it's a solved problem, you're basically saying like, there's not going to be a lot of difference in opinions and there's like a pretty efficient market. So like, why would you bother taking a chance on someone early is, is, is kind of what you're saying, or. I wouldn't say the rank ordering is necessarily solved, but I would say that the group that ultimately gets drafted are the best, right? You're not, you're not missing a lot of guys out of college that could have been good in the NFL. Right. And the guys that you do select a large proportion of them are serviceable at the NFL level. And that's just kind of hard to say about, receivers and quarterbacks in some other positions. That's a really interesting point. I wonder what position sort of is the, is the most dissimilar there in terms of you can have undrafted free agents that end up being major contributors that were overlooked. And I I mean, there's a lot of undrafted running backs as well. So I'm not even saying, I I guess I'm just saying the filter at the NFL level, the, the ability to find and then acquire running back talent it seems to just be more effective than other positions. I mean, you, okay, right, so- you, you do see a lot of really low draft picks. I mean, but that's obviously because running backs aren't taking that high overall, but I wonder also how much, you know, lo- like low draft picks or I guess high draft, but right, high right, numbered draft picks um, that put up big numbers. But a lot of the time that's not because of how good they are. It's but necessarily it's because of the situation they were in in their offensive line. Right. So I have, I have uh, two questions for you. The first is if given the fact that like, we'll all agree that this is the draft, at least in our lifetimes, which is probably has the least amount of real information because of last season and some of these teams not playing a ton of games, et cetera. And um, so with more uncertainty approaching this draft, if you are a team, do you try to load up on picks this draft, or do you try to uh, trade those picks away for more picks next year? I think the smartest thing to do if you're not in desperate need this year is to trade to another year. Um, uh, now, that, that's, that could be in flux. If you think, like, I mean, there's this whole meta thing going on. Like, if you think your opponents are doing a terrible job at valuing people this year, you know, maybe there's an edge to be had. But that's what I was getting at. My, my, my question would be, is there a world where people just think their processes are that much better? And if there's more inefficiency because of other people having, you know, poor processes, this would be the time to load up. And if people are thinking similar to you, Josh, where they're like, I'd rather trade back all of a sudden, now you've increased the, you know, the inefficiency around trading back. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I think it's the answer is it's in flux, but I think my final answer would probably be something like you're still dominated by variance. So you're just any edge you think you're getting, you, you're probably just wanting to get like, for instance, if I was Baltimore at the end of this round and I need a wide receiver, I would not hesitate with using those two late round picks on wide receivers. Like I would, I would fire the gun twice. And, and again, that's, uh, that's probably not efficient team building but it is efficient when you have a team they have um it is an efficient a more efficient way to try and get that problem solved um because their wide receiver room is 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 pretty poop 
Maybe they should draft a quarterback. Uh, I mean, just well, speaking wait, speaking of quarterbacks, so I, I do have a question here. And in, in, in the the Massey Thaler paper from what I think it was written in like two thousand four or five and didn't actually get te- published technically, even though it was widely circulated, it wasn't published for like another eight years or something. But that. Um, that paper basically said that teams overvalue the right to choose and that the number one pick, number two pick, it's like trading up for those picks is an awful idea. Um, we saw what the Washington football team did you know, trading for RG3. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of examples of teams mortgaging the future to, to get those high picks. Um, I've talked to Cade now though, and Cade, or at least this was a year or two ago, Cade believes that quarterbacks are so important that basically in you may be right to trade a, a bunch for the right quarterback. And I mean, to further that point, I was, you know, I'm doing some stuff work from SCP body right now, actually some prep. And um, you know, we find that basically of our prior for often for a team's offense going into the season, like 60% of the variance comes from the quarterback or 61%, like, and like 39% is the whole, like 10 other players combined. So I mean, are we, are teams right? Are they justified in, you know, moving, like trading, like heaven and earth to like move up a few spots to, to try to get a quarterback? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and then I think it's borne out in everyone. I mean, there's lots of different ways to measure this, but PFF has war, which I think is fine, but there's lots of other ways to do it too. And what you, you always come back to is the expected value, even with the variance is still so much higher at that position that it's probably worth um, whatever small little pennies you're picking up in value from trading back um, and not. So trading up and, and using, say, second round picks to move up maybe second this year and a third in the next to move up higher in a draft where you're going to for sure take a, a quarterback is probably a high has a probably high, a higher expected value just because of the position than um, than whatever you might be doing even if you're you're a really sharp drafter in the later round. So, yeah, I agree with that take. Um, that's how I would do. It. I mean, I'm a guy who would who would take two quarterbacks in the first round if I had the ability. So, um, you know, but again, you, you get into there's there's lots of constraints and organizational constraints. And actually, you talk about K and he just wrote with Zach. Um, Gosh, I'm blanking on Zach's last name, but he's one of his students at Wharton. He's a tremendous guy. I just um, I met him when I. Wait, what's that? I just pulled this up. Um, wait, Zach Draper, I think his name is, or is it Zach Drapkin? Drapkin. Drapkin. I apologize, Zach. You're, you're fantastic. I met him when I went to to Wharton and, and spoke there with a bunch of other folks, and he showed me around. Super guy. I know Kate thinks the world of him. Uh, thinks he's a superstar, and uh, and I know he's actually working for a team as a as an intern this season. So. Just a, a great guy all around, super sharp. But their their paper, um, that the, the article they wrote, it, it's like quintessential Cade. I, and I don't mean to downplay Zach's contribution here, but it, like he framed it so well. He took away every possible argument you could have that the Jimmy Johnson chart is even remotely good. And and then he said, and you know, take away all these ways where you could even argue that we're uh, we're being uh, you know we're being overly conservative. And yet it's still overvaluing early picks. And, and yet the NFL refuses to move off of this chart because it's this kind of accepted, agreed upon value from which all truth springs. 
and you can you can start discussions and, and negotiations from it. And I just think it's sad and lazy and all, all sorts of bad things about says bad things about the NFL. But um, more than anything, I think it's this. It just shows that um, if there are still a lot of teams thinking that way, to the point uh, that Jeff was talking about, then maybe if if there's even more uncertainty this year about valuation, then maybe there's a way to move up this year and and take someone like Fields, right? If he drops. I, I, I think that would just be a, a, an awesome move for a forward thinking team. Um, and, and it goes against a lot of analytical thinking or at least previously held analytical thinking. Right. I was going to say, isn't the point that like Cade's paper would argue against that? It, it would say, I mean, you're paying a huge premium to trade up to get that quarterback, but yeah, but, but, but like he said, and, and like, I think most have found the value of the position is just so high. I mean, even take away the name. Um, just, just what they provide um, to a team is just so high that you're still probably plus EV. I mean, I think the next level is trying to figure out how to evaluate a quarterback when you have him in the organization without giving him starts. Because I guess you can't, I mean, you have a think about like a guy like Taylor Heineke for Washington last year who comes in and, and clearly surpassed anybody's expectations for him. Like, does that mean he's going to be a long-term success in the NFL? But no, not necessarily. And I, I think regardless though, I think he, clearly is better than people thought he was, but you don't learn that from, I guess you can't learn that from the practice field as much. You can't, you don't see in a non-contact practice, you can't really face a real pass rush. So is there a way to, I guess I'm making an argument for a developmental league, but, but mm-hmm. I mean, because I, I, you're, you're to your point of like taking two quarterbacks in the first round, that sounds great, but at the same time, you need to be able to give, you need to ha- give a guy playing time to evaluate him. And if you're going back and forth between quarterbacks, I remember Steve Spurrier did that when famously when he was hired by Washington and didn't work out so well. Um, it's so. Yeah. I think, I think the end run around that problem is that you take quarterbacks that you can evaluate quickly uh, athletic quarterbacks in systems that they're used to from college where, you know, you're not asking the pocket passer and read the defense to the third you know, like you're, you're asking them to make one read and then either go or, or do something they're completely used to doing, um, um, which is read uh, the second half of the field or a levels reader. I mean, we, we go in the weeds, but I just I think there are ways to kind of narrow that and say, well, yeah, we only have X many snaps, but we can maximize the amount of information we extract from those snaps by a picking the types of players that make that evaluation easier and then putting them in a system where, you know, it makes that evaluation a, a little more straightforward. And that, that kind of jives right with like the people analytics finding or wisdom and people analytics in general of hire and fire quickly. Be, be willing to move on. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And, and actually I don't, I'm not well-versed in uh, people analytics. I know it's something uh, that uh, the professor of the practice talks a lot about, but uh, I, I am not an expert. So I will, uh, I will defer to you. I mean, neither am I. I've just gotten to go to the People Analytics Conference for a bunch of years in a row um, because of Cade, which has been a tremendous learning experience. Especially when I was the uh, featured uh, speaker, right, back in the day? Exactly. <laughs> All right, I Josh. You, I would take you over Malcolm Gladwell every day of the week. Nice. Yeah, too bad, like, uh, people who read books would never say the same thing, but that's okay. Hey, uh, your, your, your book is displayed on my, in sort of the front and center book case, whereas the Gladwell books I've read are 
may not even you know that they're in a closet. Hopefully, somewhere. they're kindling for you now, not yeah. not Kindle kindling. Let's see what they're, I did there. they're there for me to like dredge up something to make a point. And dredge is a great a great term for that. So, uh, Josh, thanks for joining us. Um, awesome insights on the draft. Um, I I guess um, if you were going to bet on one thing, would you would you bet on Mac Jones being number three right now? Yeah, yeah, I think that's. That's and maybe take a, a flyer, lot. take a flyer on on Josh Fields at two plus eight hundred, and just have something fun to root for. But totally. All right, Justin Fields. Sorry, I always call him Josh. Josh Fields, Fields was a third baseman for the White Sox, and also a pitcher. Yeah. So we we've good, said this ad nauseum. Good pull. Good pull. Thanks, Josh.